The Ute tribe has inhabited the area around Fort Duchesne, Utah, for thousands of years and know the area better than anyone. About two miles south of Fort Duchesne lies a remote, roughly 500-acre plot of land that members of the tribe do not enter. For years, the area has been plagued by strange supernatural phenomena, much of which is now documented in the tribe's folklore, and the land eventually became known as the Path of the Skinwalker. For the Ute, the Navajo, and many other tribes of the American Southwest, skinwalkers are much more than a simple campfire tale passed down from generation to generation. They are very real, very dangerous, and very rarely spoken of, because doing so could have supernatural repercussions. The details vary from tribe to tribe, but ultimately, it all boils down to basically the same thing. Skinwalkers are malevolent, shape-shifting witches cast out of their tribe for practicing black magic. They can take the form of animals, most often it seems to be wolves, but coyotes, foxes, crows, and owls are all fairly common as well. And if a person makes eye contact with a skinwalker, it could even transform into them. It is said that in order for a witch to gain these powers to become a skinwalker, they must first perform a terrible initiation ritual. They must kill someone who is very dear to them, perhaps a child, sibling, or a parent. Committing this heinous deed grants the witch their supernatural power, but at the cost of being banished from their tribe. Skinwalkers are amongst the most feared creatures in Native American folklore. It is the belief of the Utes that this land, the path of the skinwalker, had been cursed, making it a haven for strange, dark beings like skinwalkers. And over the years, more and more evidence has been found that suggests that there might just be something to this curse. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Hi, guys and gals, and welcome to episode 9 of Simply Strange. So glad you could all make it. I hope you're having a absolutely wonderful day so far, and I wish you a happy holidays, safe travels as you get around to wherever you're going. This week, we will be traveling to the Weird and Wild Skinwalker Ranch in the northeast corner of Utah. And I don't really have any exciting news or anything crazy I want to plug at the top of the show this week. I'm sure you're probably thrilled to hear that. No stalling. No filibustering before this episode starts. We're just gonna get straight into today's story. We're just gonna start talking about it. So, yeah, let's just go ahead and cue the music.
In the summer of 1994, Terry and Gwen Sherman purchased their new home, a beautiful remote ranch just south of Fort Duchesne, Utah. It seemed like a dream come true, 480 acres of fertile pastures broken up by cottonwood trees and olives, a perfect place for Terry, Gwen, and their two children to settle down. The northern border of the property winds its way along an irrigation canal that serves as a divider between their green pastures and a monstrous 200-foot-long ridge of red rocks and mud that looms over that end of the ranch. The southern end of the property is marked by a creek, hugged by dense foliage as it snakes its way east to west. It was a great piece of land, and the Shermans were really excited about it. The previous owners had bought it back in the 50s, but it had been vacant for about seven years before the Shermans bought it. As a result, the unkept pastures were littered with garbage and a lot of work needed to be done to get it to where it needed to be. So it was a fixer-upper, but the Shermans were fully aware of that and they were up for the challenge. Plus, the condition of the property helped them fetch it for a really good price. Terry Sherman was a rancher, and a damn good one at that. He took great pride in his ability to raise top-tier cattle that would consistently fetch high prices, while losing less of his cattle than other ranchers in the area. Among his contemporaries, it was expected that they would lose about 5% or so of their herd to things like predators and disease, while Terry, on the other hand, managed to keep the rate closer to 1%. What the Shermans didn't know was that their new little slice of heaven had a dark side. There were hints from the beginning. The contract with the previous owner had strange requirements, like no digging holes anywhere on the property without first consulting the previous owner. When the Shermans first arrived at the property, they noticed that extreme security measures had been taken. All of the windows were bolted shut and protected with bars and every single door in the house was outfitted with huge deadbolts. Outside of each of the four exterior doors of the house, metal chains hung from the wall, which Terry later learned were where four ferocious guard dogs used to be posted by the old owners. Terry and Gwen Sherman obviously thought that all of this was a little strange, but they attributed it more to unfounded paranoia on the part of the previous owners than they did to any real threat that the area might pose. So it didn't dampen their spirits and they weren't too concerned about these little quirks at first. But it wasn't going to take long for the path of the skinwalker to reveal its true nature. Luck was not on their side the day that the Shermans moved into their new home. It was a rainy, muddy, not-so-pleasant day to unload all their belongings. Between bands of rain, as Terry, Gwen, and Terry's father all worked to unload the truck, Terry spotted an animal several hundred yards away in the pasture, trotting towards them. As he watched it approach them, 
Gwyn and his father noticed that he had gotten distracted by something in the field, and they turned their gaze out towards the creature as well. At first, it was too far away to really tell what it was. It had gray fur and appeared to be soaked by the rain and wet grass, and it was big. Even from very far away, they could tell it was big. But as it got closer, it seemed to get even bigger. Eventually, the beast stopped, about 50 yards away from them. And at this point, they could tell it was a wolf, but Terry estimated that it was almost three times as big as a normal wolf. For a few moments, the creature just stood there, its piercing blue eyes calmly gazing in their direction. It seemed unconcerned, but also curious perplexed by this new presence that had shown up at the ranch. It began to approach them, quickly sauntering towards the group and stopping directly in front of Terry's father. The massive wolf was about chest level with Terry's father, who was about six feet tall. At this point, they started to think that maybe the animal was tame, as it seemed completely comfortable with them and it wasn't exhibiting any signs of aggression. So Terry's father reached down to pet it, and it seemed to react pretty well to this, showing no signs of fear or aggression, which put everyone a little bit more at ease for the moment. The wolf began to wander around in front of them for a few minutes. Their two children, who until now had been camping out safely on top of the truck, came down to join their parents on the ground, suggesting that they keep it as a pet. As they were speaking, though, the wolf meandered a little bit closer to the corral where Terry had recently unloaded the first of his prized calves. And then, in a blink, the wolf closed the distance to the corral and wrapped its jaws around the head of one of Terry's young calves. It began tugging at it, trying to pull it through the bars and to drag it away. Terry and his father immediately rushed to the cow's rescue, grabbing a baseball bat en route. They began to viciously beat the wolf with the bat while simultaneously kicking it in the ribs, but to no avail. The wolf didn't even flinch, and it continued to tug at the calf. Terry's son ran up with his father's magnum and handed it to him. Terry fired a shot directly into the wolf's ribs. No reaction whatsoever. It just continued trying to rip the screaming calf through the bars of the corral. So Terry fired another shot. And again, there was no reaction from the wolf. Not only did it not react to the bullet, but there didn't even appear to be a wound. There was no visible blood on the creature at all. So Terry unloaded a third shot into the creature's ribs. And finally, it released the calf. Slowly, though, not like it was too injured to continue the struggle, but more like it just got bored and lost interest. The wolf turned back to face Terry, its unyielding, hypnotic gaze washing over him. Terry shot the beast a fourth time with the handgun, right in what should have been the wolf's heart. Again, it didn't so much as flinch, and there were still no visible injuries to it. But it did finally begin to back away, and Terry seized this opportunity to up his firepower. He ordered his son to run back into the house and grab his rifle. A few moments later, Terry was staring down the scope of his .30-06 right at the beast's shoulder. He pulled the trigger. 
The bullet made direct impact, but to all of their amazement and terror, the wolf barely reacted. It backed off a little bit more, but it remained standing and continued its icy stare in their direction. This was the rifle that Terry used to hunt elk. It should have torn the wolf apart. Between the four shots from the handgun and the impact from the rifle, there was no way that this wolf should still be alive. Yet, there it was, lazily staring in their direction as if nothing had happened. Terry fired another shot, this one passing clean through the wolf, tearing off a decent-sized chunk of flesh as it exited the back of the wolf. The wolf didn't really have much of a reaction to this shot either. It didn't seem startled or injured, but it did finally, slowly, turn away and begin to jog back out towards the pasture, much the way it did when it first arrived. But this wasn't quite enough for Terry. He was worried that if he didn't finish it off now, the monstrous creature might return to attack his calves, and maybe next time Terry wouldn't be around to stop it. So he gave chase with his son right behind him. The creature weaved in and out of patches of cottonwood trees as the pair ran behind it, sometimes chasing it and sometimes following the massive footprints it was leaving behind in the muddy pasture. It was outrunning them, and soon it reached the line of trees at the edge of the property and disappeared into the brush. When they arrived at the tree line, they came to a stop and began following the tracks through the woods. Their pace was slow now, the dense brush was full of thorns and weeds that hindered their progress, but the ground was still muddy and the tracks were clearly visible. For an experienced tracker like Terry, they were very easy to follow. But then, they stopped. In a very muddy patch, where the tracks sank almost two inches into the ground, the trail just ended and the wolf was nowhere to be seen. Terry and his son were stunned and terrified by the bulletproof vanishing wolf, and neither of them could explain what happened. The Shermans were not off to a great start with their new home. And what they didn't know was that the region that they had just moved to, the Uinta Basin of Northeast Utah, had a history of crazy sightings and encounters just like what they experienced. There are countless reports of strange balls of light floating around, and a lot of UFO sightings as well, dating all the way back to the 1700s, when some Spanish explorers say they saw a strange fireball shooting over their camp one night. There's also Bigfoot sightings and cattle mutilations, all kinds of weird stuff. And the Sherman's Ranch, the area that the local Ute tribe refers to as the Path of the Skinwalker, was reportedly one of the most active areas in the region. The Sherman's encounter with the bulletproof wolf wasn't unique. 
or even unusual for the ranch. And it was only the beginning. Over the coming months, the Shermans would experience all kinds of mystifying and terrifying, unexplainable events, just like the wolf encounter. More than I could possibly go over in just one episode, and probably more than you want to hear anyway. So we'll just cover a few more highlights. Another strange event occurred when Terry was out of town one night, and the children were spending the night at a friend's house, leaving poor Gwen Sherman at the ranch alone for the evening. At around 6 o'clock, as she was driving down the long driveway to the house, she noticed a peculiar dark shadow in the sky about 20 to 30 feet above her car by her estimate. The night was clear, and she could see the triangular object obscuring the stars as it seemed to keep pace with her vehicle while she drove up the driveway. The object appeared to be shooting down tiny, multicolored, red, green, blue, and yellow lights, almost like little lasers that followed alongside her car. It continued to keep pace with her as she drove up the driveway, until she reached the house, where it continued silently on, over the house, and eventually out of sight. Understandably so, this thing, whatever it was, really shook up Gwen. As soon as she got inside, she called her husband to tell him what had happened. Between talking to him and the fact that whatever she had seen seemed to be gone, she was eventually able to calm down. Until, that is, about an hour later, when she happened to look out the window into the pasture behind the house and noticed what looked like a large RV just sitting there in the pasture. It wasn't uncommon for them to get trespassers, usually UFO hunters who heard about the property's reputation and snuck in to see it for themselves, but the only entrance to the property was the locked gate at the driveway, which, even if they got through it, would have required the RV to have driven right past the house to get to where it was. So it shouldn't have been there, at least not without her seeing it get there. The inside of the RV was brightly lit, and as she looked at it, she saw what looked like a black-colored figure moving into view and sitting down at a desk. For a while, the figure just sat there, but eventually it got back up, and it opened a door on the side of the RV. As the door opened, the brightly lit interior of the RV ominously framed the dark figure as it stood in the doorway, now looking directly towards Gwen. She rushed away from the window immediately and called Terry again, who, hearing how panicked his wife was now, rushed home. He drove all night and arrived at the ranch early in the morning. As soon as he got there, Gwen took him out to the area where she saw the RV and the strange man, and to both of their terror, they found huge prints, 18 inches long, that looked to be from something like a military boot, except that they were perfectly rounded on the edges, and it appeared that they had no treads. This was the first real physical proof 
that the Shermans had of there being something lurking around the farm, and it had a huge impact on them. From then on, the children were not allowed to leave the house at night, and Gwen rarely did either. But the ranch wasn't done yet. Almost on a daily basis, the Shermans would see some kind of crazy phenomenon. There were encounters with this crazy creature that could run at speeds of around 60 miles per hour and had camouflage almost to the point of invisibility, a lot like the aliens in the Predator movies. There are multiple reports of this thing running out of the woods to briefly harass people before mysteriously disappearing again. Terry lost a lot of cattle while they lived there. Some were mutilated, with body parts being removed with surgical precision, and one was found with a deep but clean hole drilled in its anus. And some cows just outright disappeared. There was an instance where he was tracking a missing cow's prints through a snowstorm when they just stopped, like the cow had vanished, much like the wolf did. The loss of cattle was a big blow to the Shermans. They were top-notch animals that were worth a lot of money, and Terry was very careful and took great care of his herd. He didn't usually lose any animals, so this was a big financial blow for them. Then there were the wolves. They continued to show up. I've seen Bigfoot mentioned as well. There were also strange floating blue lights that supposedly attacked their minds and filled them with uncontrollable fear beyond anything that they had ever felt before. Things around the house would disappear and be found days later in strange places, like nestled in treetops. The family saw UFOs, including recurring sightings of a black triangular one that looked like a stealth fighter. The list goes on and on, and the whole family was experiencing things. The Shermans were getting very uneasy and starting to reach a breaking point. They were afraid of their own home. In April of 1996, nearing two years from his purchase of the ranch, Terry was spending an evening unwinding behind the house, trying to relax, which, given the circumstances, was becoming an increasingly difficult task. But it was a nice night. His three loyal cattle dogs were by his side, and, all things considered, he was doing all right. About a mile to the west of him, was a cloudy orange mass that would often appear around the ranch. It was strange. It seemed almost like it was a portal. Terry swore he had seen objects come flying in and out of it at times, and that if you looked at it from the right angle, you could see blue sky on the other side, even at night, like it was a door to another world. 
the orange mass came and went, and by now Terry had seen it so many times that he didn't even bother with it. It was just part of life at Skinwalker Ranch. Then, in the distance, he saw a bright blue flash. Terry sat up a little bit in his chair and scanned the pasture in the direction of the light. There was one thing that stood above everything else as the most dreaded apparition at the ranch. The floating blue orb. That often seemed to be around whenever cattle would go missing and filled the Shermans with agonizing dread whenever they got too close to it. And there, at the other end of the pasture, Terry spotted the blue orb, rapidly darting back and forth across the field and working its way toward Terry and the dogs. Terry was extremely fond of his cattle dogs. They were everything you could want in a dog. Loyal to Terry, gentle with the family, but ferocious when they needed to be, and very protective. And this floating orb sent them into a frenzy. For some reason, Terry, likely acting out of a combination of fear and panic, decided to let them loose to go after the orb, something he had never done before. All three dogs took off at a full-tilt sprint straight for the strange ball of light. In mere moments, they had reached the orb, which lowered itself to just a few feet above the ground, right at the edge of the dog's jumping range. All three of them began to throw themselves in the air towards the floating ball of light, and each time they did so, it would nimbly bob out of their way at the last second, like it was teasing them. And then it would return to its previous position, just within their reach, enticing them to jump again. The strange dance continued for a little while, and as it did, Terry noticed that the furious mass of fur and light had began to inch its way towards a patch of trees at the southern end of the property. His eyes were glued to the situation that was unfolding him. In his experience, nothing good ever happened when the blue orb was around, and he was terrified that the trend was about to continue. But he was frozen in place, unable to do anything to stop it. After a few minutes, they were right along the edge of the trees, and the orb kind of detached itself from its antics with the dogs, and eased its way into the brush, winding through the trees with the trio of dogs chasing close behind it. Terry's heart fell into his stomach as he watched them disappear into the trees. Seconds later, his fears were confirmed, as he heard the agonized shrieks of his beloved dogs resonating through the pasture. And then, dead silence. Terry waited outside for a few hours, but he could never muster up the heart to go into the woods after his dogs. He just wasn't willing to face what he was sure he would find. So he waited outside, hoping that the dogs would return. But they never did, and he eventually retired to the homestead for the evening. It wasn't until the next morning that he went back outside to inspect the trees where his dogs had disappeared. And as soon as he entered the brush, he was accosted with the smell of burning flesh. And then about 10 yards into the trees, Terry arrived at a small grassy clearing. In the middle of the clearing was three circles of brown, dried out, burnt looking grass and in the center of each circle was a heaping mass of black, 
greasy something. Whatever was left of his dogs. Between the sight and the smell, Terry almost threw up. As soon as he saw the remains, Terry turned around and rushed out of the trees, his eyes watering and his stomach heaving. This was the last straw. With the loss of his loyal dogs, Terry decided that it was time for him and his family to cut their losses and get out of there. They had already sustained more than their fair share of psychological damage, but Terry feared that at any time, the same thing that happened to his cattle and his dogs could happen to his family as well. So he spoke to his family, they all agreed, and they put the house up for sale. The trouble was, though, that Terry didn't want to subject some other poor soul to the hell that he and his family went through. He needed to sell the property, but he wanted to sell it to someone who was aware of and comfortable with the invisible monsters, UFOs, animals being mysteriously slaughtered, and all the other nonsense that was going on. Which you would think would be pretty difficult, but it turns out it wasn't that hard. The Sherman story ended up getting a fair amount of press coverage, and before long he was approached by a businessman named Robert Bigelow. Bigelow was a real estate magnate, owner and founder of the Budget Suites of America hotel chain, and a huge space enthusiast also. Using the wealth that he accumulated from his commercial real estate ventures, Bigelow founded Bigelow Airspace, a company that develops and manufactures space station modules and the National Institute for Discovery Science, a research organization focusing on the paranormal, particularly UFOs. So Bigelow is a pretty cool dude, and as unlucky as the Shermans were up to this point, they were pretty lucky to have attracted his interest because he was exactly the kind of buyer that they were looking for. He wanted a weird and wild property with UFOs and paranormal activity. The National Institute for Discovery Science, or NIDS, was kind of an enigma. It was the first of its kind, an organization created and funded for the explicit purpose of applying the scientific method to paranormal research. Bigelow wanted the property for research purposes. He planned to use it as ground zero for his studies on paranormal abnormalities. And that's exactly what he did. After selling the cursed ranch, the Shermans relocated to a new ranch about 25 miles away. And while Gwyn and the two children were perfectly content to never step foot on Skinwalker Ranch ever again, Terry still felt like he had some unfinished business with the ranch. Like he and the ranch were at war and he was losing, but he wasn't ready to give up yet. So... When Nids offered to bring him into their operation as a ranch manager, to take care of the cattle they were keeping there as bait, maintain the property, lend his experiences to the research team, he eagerly accepted, determined to win the war. From 1996 to 2002, Nids conducted extensive research there, actively seeking out and trying to understand the phenomena that plagued the Shermans for the last two years. They brought a trailer out to the property, outfitted with instruments intended to gather data on any electromagnetic activity or unusual lights. They also used night vision binoculars, night vision cameras, 
radio frequency analyzers, and microwave detectors to hunt for any anomalies. The setup was very portable, so they were able to move around as needed to focus their research on any section of the ranch that they liked. They installed a new fence around the perimeter of the property in an attempt to seal off the ranch and keep any prying eyes on the outside and to keep whatever may be lurking around the ranch on the inside. They were very secretive about the whole thing. There was no information released to the public, and no one was allowed in. The team would interview locals by day, hoping to shed some light on the events surrounding the ranch, and they would observe the property by night. But whatever forces were out there on the ranch seemed to know that they were being watched, and they weren't playing along. According to NID's researchers, the strange events never stopped, but they never manifested themselves in ways that they were able to record either. That's convenient. There were lights, but they were too far away to collect data on, and they barely showed up in pictures. UFOs continued to appear, but NIDS was never able to record them. There were cattle mutilations, where body parts were removed with surgical precision and the animal's blood was completely drained, but there was no evidence to be found as to who or what was responsible for the act. And there were encounters with strange, shadowy beasts in the distance that disappeared as soon as researchers tried to approach them. The goal of their research was to capture measurable and indisputable evidence of paranormal or extraterrestrial phenomena. And it seemed like it was there, but the ranch was just teasing them, keeping their goal just barely out of reach. And they were failing. By July 1997, it was clear to the researchers that what they were doing wasn't working. So they changed their strategy. Instead of using their trailer as the main location of all their gear and concentrating most of their measurements on one specific location, they set up gear all across the ranch. One of the ways that they did this was to install a series of three telephone poles in one of the pastures, several hundred feet from the control center trailer. On top of each of these poles were multiple cameras that ran 24-7, as well as an array of various other sensors. These cameras ran from July 1997 to July 1998, and nothing interesting really happened. Until July 20th, 1998. Most of the research team was in Las Vegas at the corporate office, providing an update to the board. Terry Sherman, though, was at the ranch as usual, and he noticed that three of the cameras had stopped working. So he made the trek out to the pasture where the pole-mounted cameras were located, expecting to find that they had been damaged by lightning or had some sort of mechanical failure. But that was not the case. What he instead found was that the cameras appeared to have been vandalized. When they initially set the cameras up, the power and the video feeds for the cameras were all wound together and wrapped with duct tape. And then they were run through a plastic tubing. And then that tubing was then duct taped to the pole. And then the wires went all the way down to the pole, underground, and over to the command center. And when Terry got there to investigate, what he found was that someone, or something, had ripped the wires out of the camera, unwrapped all of the duct tape that was holding the plastic tubing to the pole, and then 
ripped the wiring out of the plastic tubing and had carefully removed all of the duct tape from the wiring. This all would have been a very tedious process, as you probably could have inferred by how tedious it was trying to explain the specifics of exactly what they did. But the weirdest part was that all of this duct tape that had been meticulously unwrapped from the wires and the pole was gone. Nowhere to be found. Obviously, this was a pretty significant development. So Terry called the corporate office in Las Vegas to report the damaged cameras, and they immediately sent the research team back to the ranch to investigate the situation and to review the surveillance footage from the remaining cameras. And what they found was pretty interesting. They started with the tape from the three damaged cameras in hopes that they would catch the perpetrator as they approached. All three cameras lost power within moments of each other at around 8.30 the previous night. But even after careful review, there was nothing to be seen in any of the footage. There was no movement whatsoever. The cameras just shut off without capturing anything unusual. So the damaged cameras were a dead end. But there was also another set of cameras nearby that had the damaged cameras within their field of vision. So the team reviewed the footage from these cameras as well. They jumped to the 8.30 timestamp where the other cameras had been disabled, and what they saw there was even more dumbfounding than the footage from the damaged cameras. There was nothing. The damaged cameras were plainly shown in this footage. At the time that they were damaged, when the plastic tubing was ripped off and all the duct tape was meticulously removed, you could see the little red power lights turn off on the cameras. But aside from that, there was nothing to be seen except for a few cows grazing nearby. The cameras, according to this video, had somehow just destroyed themselves. This event, in a lot of ways, exemplified the entirety of the NIDS research team's experience at the ranch. Everyone witnessed stuff, strange lights, cattle mutilations, mysterious creatures that would suddenly disappear, UFOs, but they always eluded them, and no concrete evidence of anything was ever recorded. At least, none that has been revealed to the public. And the longer that NIDS was there, the less the phenomena seemed to show itself until it eventually seemed to pitter out around 2002, at which point NIDS no longer kept crews there full-time, but they did continue to check in occasionally. So, what's really going on at Skinwalker Ranch? Is the land truly cursed? Or home to a portal to another dimension? Or is there a more rational explanation? It's possible that the whole thing was a hoax. Maybe it was the Sherman's way of escaping financial ruin after the death of so many of their expensive cattle. It conveniently wasn't until 1996, when he was trying to sell the farm, that Terry went to the media. And immediately after he sold it, he disappeared again, not really resurfacing until 2005, when a book called Hunt for the Skinwalker came out. The book was written by a NIDS scientist named Colm Kelleher and a journalist named George Knapp, who had become close with Terry Sherman and Robert Bigelow 
which allowed the two of them to publish a lot of new information. This book is where a good chunk of what we've been talking about here today came from. But aside from this book, Terry has been very secretive and hasn't really made himself available to the public. I do find it interesting how carefully both Terry and Bigelow have curated what information gets released. And what does get released is through a very small selection of carefully chosen sources. But was it all a hoax? Who knows? The carefully curated information we have says Terry was honest and in no way seeking attention. Whether that's the truth or not, we'll probably never know. But we do know that he's, again, vanished from the public eye. So if he was seeking attention, then that ship has sailed. Plus, the area did have a reputation for strangeness long before the Shermans arrived. Another theory that's tossed around is that the Shermans were delusional. But my problem with that is that they all corroborate each other's story. So they'd all have to be delusional. And Nid's experienced a lot of weird stuff on the ranch in their time there as well. Are they delusional too? And what about the Ute tribes that avoid the cursed land? Then there's reports from neighbors as well. I'll admit that this stuff is all really fantastic. But is everyone in Fort Duchesne delusional? Uh, my guess would be no. Maybe it's another case of someone seeing something weird and the rumor mills get started and suddenly everyone's thinking that they're seeing weird stuff and it just snowballs out of control. But at the same time, things like the encounter with the wolf and the strange destruction of the cameras don't seem like they could possibly be a mistake. Although, maybe the wolf was just a wolf. I think it's probably fair to say that some of the sightings were people's imaginations getting the best of them. But I don't know if I buy that being the sole perpetrator here. Then we have all the weird and wild theories that there really are UFOs and alien visitors hanging out at Skinwalker Ranch. Or it could be military experimentation. Or maybe the Ute Skinwalker curse is real and it's all connected to that. And then there's the orange portal in the sky that Terry claims to have seen an object fly through at one point. Maybe the ranch is somehow connected via this portal to another dimension, and all of the strange phenomena that are being seen in the area are visitors from that dimension coming through the portal. And maybe all the disappearing animals are somehow being pulled back into that dimension. I like that theory. I think that one's pretty cool. But the truth is, we're probably never going to know what's really going on. Maybe there's a perfectly rational explanation. Or maybe there's not. In 2004, NIDS disbanded and their research at the ranch stopped. In 2016, Bigelow sold the ranch to a private corporation called Adamantium Real Estate who has remained extremely secretive about their intentions with the ranch. They've since acquired a trademark for the name Skinwalker Ranch, and aside from that, we know pretty much nothing. The site is now monitored 24-7 by security guards and cameras, and anyone associated with Adamantium reportedly must sign an NDA. In a recent documentary about the ranch, a man is interviewed who is supposedly the new owner, but his face is blurred and his voice is disguised. 
no useful information is really divulged there. Just that the secrecy is all in an effort to protect his assets. Obviously, given the ranch's history, the secrecy has sparked a lot of rumors about what's going on at the ranch now. But I think that, in this case, the most simple explanation is probably the truth. According to their trademark details, they will be providing recreation facilities, arranging and conducting special events for social entertainment purposes, and it also mentions the development and distribution of multimedia content. So I think that's your explanation. They're trying to cash in on the property's legacy by turning it into some sort of supernatural tourist attraction. Like Grunkle Stan's Mystery Shack in Gravity Falls. And maybe there will be some YouTube videos or documentaries or something produced on the side. Adamantium seems pretty harmless to me. I'm not sure that I buy into them being involved in anything weird. I really want to take Terry Sherman at his word, and to believe all the tales of bulletproof wolves, invisible monsters, and floating portals, and all of the other crazy stories from Skinwalker Ranch, a lot of which I wasn't even able to get to in this episode. But it's all just too much to believe. For all these people who have supposedly seen things there, the lack of any actual evidence it's pretty frustrating. It's all just eyewitness accounts. And eventually, too many eyewitness accounts with nothing to show starts to look a little suspect. Skinwalker Ranch is a fascinating place with an awesome legacy. But I worry that its reputation might outweigh anything that it actually is or ever was. But whether any of it is real or not, it sure is fun to think about. Well guys, that is a wrap for episode 9 of Simply Strange. I hope you enjoyed it, and thanks so much for listening. The fact that anyone wants to listen to me lock myself in a closet and talk about aliens for an hour is beyond me but thanks for doing it if you happen to know any friends who might be looking for some new podcasts to listen to if you want to throw simply strange their way that would be pretty cool and much appreciated over here and also if you've been enjoying the show and feel so inclined reviews on Apple or Stitcher or Google Play, wherever you listen to your podcasts, go a long way in helping people to find this podcast. So if you haven't left a review yet and have been enjoying the show, I would really appreciate it if you left a review. Uh, that's about all I got for you guys this week. Thanks a bunch for listening. Have a wonderful holidays, and I'll talk to you guys in two weeks. <laughs>